Our reading of God's Word is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We looked at length at the first part of this reading last Lord's Day. Peter describes us as living in a sinful, depraved world that is so black that the blackness doesn't stand out. Everywhere you look is sin and depravity, so it looks normal. And God has called us out of that and made us something different than that. So the world points its finger at us and says, what's wrong with you? Why don't you run with us into this sea of dissipation? That's what, quote, normal people will do. That would bring up the thought in any thinking reader or hearer, how long is this going to be? How long are we going to live in this darkened, depraved world? Uh, Is there no end to this? That's where verse 6 begins. Peter responds to that, basically, and says, I have some good news for you. The end of all things is at hand. It will not always be like this. In fact, there is an ending coming. Be of good cheer. He wants you to know the end is coming. The way he speaks it, it's very forthright. The end of the world is near. The end of everything. He wrote 2,000 years ago. How can the apostle write, the end is near, when 2,000 years have passed? Well, it depends upon who you ask the answer you're going to get to that question. If you are on the left side of the religious spectrum, if you are 
a liberal, you will say, well, the reason he can write that is because, quite frankly, he's wrong. Jesus said he would be coming back again soon. The Apostle Paul seemed to think Jesus was coming soon. Peter clearly says the end is near, but obviously they are wrong. They thought the end would happen. It didn't come. Here is the evidence that the scripture is incorrect. We are 2,000 years from, behold, the end is very near. As you might imagine, that is probably not the way a believer would take this. But if such, how then do we answer this? If you are a full preterist, that means you believe that all of the prophecies about the future from the New Testament point of view is focused on the end of the ability to keep the Mosaic Covenant. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. Uh, you read this kind of statement, and you note that that happens not long after it's written. And you say, that's what Peter's talking about. The end is coming. God has been relating to people through the temple sacrifice and the things of uh, the, the Old Testament economy. God is making a quick end, and Peter is saying, behold, the end is near. This is going to bring the end of that and bring in the wonderful perfection that we now have. That's hard to rationalize with the, the, the context of the text. The letter seems for all the world to be written to people who were brought to faith in Christ out of the Gentile world. There's not a lot of Jewishness about this. And regardless, it doesn't really kind of fit the context. This world is going to come to an end. This, this wicked depravity we're swimming in. Be of good cheer. The end is coming. God's going to knock down the temple. That doesn't seem to fit. If you are pre-millennial about these sorts of things, you will say that the way that Peter has written is so that we will always be expectant of the end of the world to come. Jesus said the, the date, the time, the hour, no man knows. You are to watch for his coming. There's a lot of advice in the New Testament that you just never know when the Lord is going to bring all things to an end. And so if you're premillennial, you say, look, the end is near, at least practically. We should always be looking up. We should be expecting the Lord. It could happen at any moment. Uh, the Father sets his own timetables. And how do you know that we shall not see the sky split open this evening? and the Lord Christ returning in glory. There is some truth to that, without doubt. I think that attitude is something a Christian ought to have. God is God, and he doesn't obey our charts and tables. The Lord Christ will return at his timing. But again, the context is hard to, to, to summarize. There's a coming end, and it seems to be coming for you. You have been swimming in this terrible sea of dissipation. You're not made for this. You're made for something better. And the good news is you're going to get it soon. The end is near. If you're amillennial in your perspective, you read this sort of thing and go, wow, that's heavy and my emotions are affected. 
and then you kind of move on. That's just kind of what all millennialism is. Some uh, would agree with their premillennial brethren and say we should be expectant, but what about us postmillennial? Well, uh, we tend to take a very long view of history, and we would say, a lot of us, well, Peter's writing from God's perspective. God is timeless. Time means nothing to him. And this is like in the second epistle of Peter where he says, you know, to the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, quoting the Psalms, by the way. Um, so it's, it's very near and imminent as far as the way God views the world, and we should take that to heart. The only problem is that would be kind of talking to God, and God doesn't need a reminder. God knows when he's going to bring all things to an end, and uh, this is a promise to you. The, the end of the world is at hand, and more than that, Peter builds on that. He there goes on to say, therefore, therefore you should be doing certain things. So what do we make of Peter's comforting statement that the end of all things is near. This is what I would make of it. I do believe that the world will have an end. I believe that the Lord God will bring this ending about, and it will be climactic. I have been informed that there are some Christians who bring that into doubt. They picture the gospel crossing the earth and making everything better and better to the point where when Christ returns, this very world has been made almost perfect and Christ comes and he takes a seat. It doesn't seem like what the Bible seems to be describing. I know that it's a book of visions and visions can often be symbolic, but listen to what John saw when the sixth seal was broken. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as the fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? That sounds pretty, if you'll pardon a pun, apocalyptic. The sky rolls up. Mountains disappear. There is a specific day. It's the day of the wrath of God, and people are hiding. And then when you get to the end of Revelation, again, it's a book of visions, I know, but listen to these words. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I look forward to the gospel of Christ covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. I'm not pessimistic. I believe that God's power is such that he will empower God's church to bring the gospel to every nation, every land. I believe it changes the places it goes to. But when I consider the fallenness of this world, and this is the world that Solomon says, what is lacking cannot be counted and what is bent cannot be straightened, it's hard to picture the Lord Christ taking a seat in this world and saying, this is my kingdom. And the Apostle John, in his first epistle, kind of tells us, when you evaluate this world, you really kind of have to picture yourself as kind of moving through, this isn't your home. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. In fact, John pictures this world spiraling down even this moment it's coming to an end this world is passing away and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever so yeah I envision the world that we are living in is going to come to an end and it will be gone and it will be replaced with something else I am however post-millennial and I do tend to think in terms of further than next month and the likelihood of me seeing this transfer is not high in my opinion. Now, again, the Lord Christ sets his own agendas, and if Christ were to return this evening, I would not complain. But for me, and for a lot of us here, my guess is the end of the world may be coming a lot sooner than what I'm talking about. Moses considered this in Psalm 90. In Psalm 90, he writes this. Talking to God, he says, You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are as grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. And I would remind you, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter basically quotes this. So Psalm 90 is on his mind. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. 
For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. It's not a promise, but it is a really good average. The human being living on earth, if he's not hit by a dump truck or something catastrophic happens, is likely to live 70 years. In fact, he might live a little longer. And Moses goes on and says, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Moses ain't kidding. Watch. Watch people. The average person tends to kind of have a decent life till they reach about 70. And then there is this degeneration process that happens. What they were like at 70 is nothing like what they are at 80. You can see the decrepitude clawing at their physical estate. Um, it can't be missed. There's a shadow of things are coming to an end, and they are. The Lord made man to last, but ever since the curse on the earth, death is here, and death takes us. Moses goes on to say, For as is the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I remember being eight years old. I was in the basement of our home, and I was just kind of imagining things, and I thought, I wonder what the world would be like when I double my age. I couldn't imagine that, but I tried. I've lived these long eight years, and, and someday I'll be double my age. I'll be 16. I may even have a beard. I can't imagine that, but I might. I wonder what I'll be like. I mean, I remember this. 16 seemed like eons from eight. Now that I am 54, and it is a mere 16 years to 70, time does not seem to be quite the same. Teach us to number our days, says Moses. You have 70 years, maybe 80 if you're strong. Number those days. They soon quickly come to an end. We are in a time period where the wrath of God is upon all mankind. We die. Believers die. The best of us die. Number your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom. It will soon end. And for you, that is the end of the world. Listen how Solomon describes where you will soon be. The book of Ecclesiastes. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for, their for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Now Solomon doesn't here proclaim that the person is gone, but he's gone from here. Everything he's loved, it doesn't matter. Everything he's hated, doesn't matter. His perception of anything happening in the world, totally gone. Wherever there is any sort of perception happening, it is not dead people perceiving the earth. They will never, ever, ever again 
have knowledge or observation. They will never hear prayer. It's amazing how many people pray to dead people. Uh, I don't know why that happens, because God says, they done here. They're not hearing you. They don't perceive you. Anything about the earth, they don't have any share in it anymore. There's a resurrection coming, but until then, they done. You can't talk to them. It is as if they have never been here. For them, the world is over. You will see the end of the world. You will. You just might not see Christ return and claim it until a while later. But the world is going to come to an end for you very soon. 70 years, maybe 80 if you're strong, but it sucks. That's just where it's at. Peter says, take heart. The end is fairly soon. And it's comforting. But it's also sobering. You have been given by God certain days. And we have been told that God has predestined us to walk in certain good deeds that he wants us to do. Assigned to us. From the beginning of time, assigned to you, this is what God wants you to do. The clock is ticking. The marbles are being pulled from the jar. Moses says, number your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom. Peter effectively does the same. The end of all things is near, therefore. Therefore, first of all, consider how to use your time wisely. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Time is a gift. As someone who has cheated death eight or nine times, um, I know that I'm alive because God wants me to be here. And I suspect that's probably true of many of you. Every beat of the heart, every perception of the mind, every day you wake up in the morning, God has given you that time, and the clock is ticking. He has not promised you eternity here. In fact, he's done the exact opposite. He has promised most of your existence won't be here. But you have a mission from God. He has called you to do these things. Be serious. Be watchful in your prayers. God has sent you as an agent into a foreign land. You are on mission. You don't buy land and produce families in a war zone. You follow the command, and you realize uh, this world is passing away, and the lusts thereof. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. This world is not your home. Be serious while you're in it. Pray with that seriousness. And also, says Peter, because there's really just two things he therefores us on. Be serious and be serious in your prayers. And also, fervently love the brethren. What of this world will continue its existence in the next? Not a lot, but there is some. The first thing we need to consider is... God himself. When Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he set his groundwork 
as I'm only going to record those things that I can perceive under the sun. That means the things that his five senses could register. Um, he wasn't going to talk about anything the senses couldn't register. He was going to examine the world from a really very naturalistic perspective. Well, with that being the case, you would assume that Ecclesiastes wouldn't talk about God. But it does. In fact, it talks about God a lot more than you'd expect. Like, take, for instance, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. I'm examining the world by my five senses, what I can see under the sun, and walk prudently when you go to the house of God. And draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, but he is. God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. But fear God. So Solomon is here saying, when I look at the world with my five senses, I can't miss the existence of God. God is clearly here. And that would explain why there is no human group in anywhere in time and space that lacks an understanding of the divine. Now, those understandings are very different. Don't get me wrong. But there has never been a human group discovered on Earth in any time or dug out of the ground by archaeologists that did not have an understanding that divinity existed. In the 1980s, there was a plot to try to say that's not true, you can go and you can look this up. Uh, the Marcos regime in the Philippines, because they wanted to undercut the power of the Catholic Church in that country, actually staged a ruse where they took actors out into the jungles of Luzon and built a primitive Stone Age village that they discovered that was supposed to have no words for God. They were the first human group ever found that had no understanding of divinity but as you can imagine, a ruse like that doesn't last long. They fooled the BBC into making a documentary, but that's about as far as they got. There is no human group that has ever missed that God exists. And God is going to continue to exist. God will bring this age to an end. He will bring the next one. God will be there. The word of God will be there. In the first chapter, Peter said, all flesh is as grass. It's like the grass of the field. It withers. It goes away. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And then he defines the word of the Lord as the gospel. God's word will last forever. So your knowledge of the divine word is kind of a permanent kind of thing because it's going to last into eternity. 
And what else will last with you? Well, it's the brethren. If you look around and see the smiling faces that are seated with you this morning, we're going to be here. The blood of Christ has purchased us for eternity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that at the end of the story, the people who are in that world are blood-bought, and it's you and me. And so Peter says, consider that the end of the world is coming for you very shortly. Be serious, pray to God with a serious attitude, and cultivate that which you can't lose. The redeemed Christian will be with you forever. Even the really annoying one you'd rather not sit in church with. They all have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and they will be here forever. And so Peter says, consider the end of the world and fervently love the brethren. Notice the use of the word fervently. The Holy Spirit doesn't want you to miss the point. I, I, for, for a number of years, I had a cartoon on my desk. It was a pastor and it was a church deacon, and the pastor was behind the pulpit, and the deacon was scowling, sitting beside him, and he was saying, good morning, church. I just want you to know that God loves you, and I love you, and Deacon Smith is trying. It's funny because we can kind of resonate with it. This family in Christ is forever. It will last forever. You are to fervently love this family. You are to fervently love the brethren wherever you find them. The Lord God has called human beings into eternal existence in Christ. And don't be like Deacon Smith. Fervently love the brethren. And Peter goes on to give two ways that works. The first one is, and this is very, very practical, given that we are talking about eternity and death and living forever. You would assume the things we're about to talk about are going to seem very, very mystical and high-minded. But Peter says, fervently love the brethren, be hospitable. Be hospitable. You would think something more glorious would be stated, but no, be hospitable. What is hospitality? Well, hospitality is bringing people into your house, sure. But I'm sure that you have been places where people have brought you into their house, but they have not brought you into their home. And you felt it. You've known it. Everything outwardly was correct, and yet hospitality wasn't happening. Hospitality is not just bringing people into your home, it's bringing people into your life. A hospitable person spends valuable life, valuable time on other people. And you can hear that even in the language we use commonly, Oh, I'm going to spend some time with you. We say it very, very glibly. But think about what we just said. As I said in my sermon just a few minutes prior, time is a gift and the clock is ticking. In many, many ways, it is your most valuable resource. 
Hospitality is giving that resource to someone else. I will invite you into my life. I will spend my time on you. I will spend my energy on you. Uh, That's a very expensive gift you're buying. But this is the family of eternity. Fervently love the brethren. Be hospitable. And not only be hospitable, but be hospitable without grumbling. When I read 1 Peter preparing for this series of sermons, I'd read it many times before, but I honestly never really had had that line hit me until I read it this time. Be hospitable without grumbling. If you look at Scripture, you would think that when God prioritizes sins, big ones would be things like adultery or um, murder, and they are, they make the Ten Commandments. But just get out your strongest concordance at some point and look up how many times God talks about grumbling and what he thinks about it. God actually hates it. There's about nothing that God hates more than grumbling. And you can be hospitable and grumble. It's, it's oil and water, but you can do it. Uh, Solomon talks about one type of this when he writes in Proverbs, Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the little you have eaten. Eat and drink. I brought you to my table. Here, uh, you know, come... I don't want to give you any of this, but I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to feel it, and you're going to feel it. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. God loved you to the point his blood was shed for you. Talk about spending time for someone. The Lord Jesus Christ spent his lifetime for us, on us. There are a place or two in the Gospels where even Christ says, how long will I bear with you? And when you realize this is the eternal Son of God who has an eternal patience, and he looks at us and says, okay, how long am I going to bear with you? That's really kind of a very sobering moment. But over the span of the Gospels, Christ bared with us literally infinitely. He gave his life that we might live. Hospitality is kind of mirroring that. It's bringing the brethren into our lives, spending our lives on them. Jesus spent his life on us. Be hospitable without grumbling. There was a Christian writer in the 80s who was writing about evangelism, but she had kind of a cutout in her book. She said, I used to really resent when people would drop in on me. Because I'm a really important person. I write books. And you're interrupting my writing of a book. So, um, you know, you're really ruining my day. But then I realized everything that comes into my life comes across God's desk, and he sends it to me. So that means God sent me you. He sent you to me when it was 
uncomfortable with my plans. He sent you to me when I was going to do something else. But he sent you to me. I really ought to think about that. The world's coming to an end. You just got a little bit of time left. What are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to spend it on the brethren and love them without grumbling. And you are going to use your spiritual gifts. Peter ends this section reminding us that there is no such thing as a Christian disciple who is redeemed who is not a minister. It is a trick of the devil, I think, that the term minister has been exclusively limited to people like me. Who is the minister at New Hope Reformed Church? Oh, that's Pastor Westbrook. Pastor Westbrook is the pastor. He is the teaching elder. But the term minister means servant. And in the New Testament, it's applied to everybody born again. God calls you into his marvelous light, not so you'll just sit there. God calls you into his marvelous light to give you spiritual gifts and graces for you to go and do those predestined good works. God calls you to be the minister. You are to minister to one another. In other passages, you are to minister to the world. But he has given every person here who is born again spiritual gifts. And Peter mentions a couple of them, but he is just making examples. The list of spiritual gifts are open-ended in Scripture. The Holy Spirit gives to every Christian gifts and graces unique to them as they will need to glorify God in their life. You have those gifts, so clock's ticking, Fervently love the brethren by ministering those gifts. That's what you have them for. Another trick of the devil is that he has turned churches into lecture halls. Now, the sermon is very important. Otherwise, it would not be going on now for 25 minutes or so. But that is not what the church is centered on. It's centered on the word. Don't get me wrong. But it is the word of God from the pulpit. It's the word of God that you see at the table. It is the word of God as we study it in the class. It is the word of God as we live it out in Koinonia. The word of God, the apostles' doctrine, comes second in the list in, in Acts because it is so central and because it comes out in everything else. We assemble as the body of Christ to be the body of Christ to one another, and to the world, the reason why you listen to these sermons is to be equipped to minister. And Peter says the clock is ticking. This world in which we stand out like a sore thumb, this world that hates those that look like Christ, it is quickly going to end for you. And make no mistake, you have been given these gifts and graces before the face of God. God did not give you spiritual gifts and graces and turn his back and say, I'll get back to you. You let me know how you do with this. Peter emphasizes we are before the face of God to glorify God 
and God is watching everything we do with our gifts and graces. We are called to serve him. That's why we should be serious. We're called to serve him. That's why we should be serious in prayer. God is watching, and to him be all glory. The Christian life is an active life. And you certainly can't minister to the world if you can't minister to one another. I mean, seriously, it gets harder when you leave. So fervently love the brethren. Fervently love all of them. This is your eternal family. It is what will last. Jesus Christ bought this. The clock is ticking. Love the brethren.